good morning. I think it's still morning. We've still got 30 more minutes. Uh, so good to be back um, here again. It's funny, we were just joking in the green room um, before this service. Um, you know, Abbotsford is one of my favorite places in the world. And I know that because Google keeps telling me. Like every time I pull up maps, like it says you need to set your favorite location. And it has Wichita, Kansas, where I live, and then Abbotsford is the other choice. I always have to choose like which, which one are you need maps for. Um, so, you know, Google can't be wrong. So, but, and it isn't in this case, because I do love this city. I love the community here. I love, every time I come back here, just getting a little bit of a taste of how the Spirit of God is moving in the people of God, um, reaching um, the people all around us who, whether they know it or not, are searching, and whether they know it or not, are searching for Jesus, and just the privilege it is to, to be that means of introduction um, between one human being and the one who made everything. So, um, Brother Tim asked me to come and uh, kind of help kickstart a series that he's gonna do on prayer. And wow, what a massive topic. And as I and my wife, Daisy, who's not here with me this morning, but together we've been just laboring for this Sunday in prayer and just asking the Lord, like what, what could we share this morning? What could we bring in your name to just help your people to maybe view prayer in a different way? So my experience with prayer, because of my background is a little different probably than most people here, is my experience with prayer is different. I grew up as a Muslim. I grew up as a radically devout Muslim in the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. And boy, do they know about prayer there, but it looks very different than the type of prayer we see in scripture. In, in Islam, um, the religion there, um, prayer is, is required of every Muslim five times in a day and at specific times. And, and the prayers that Muslims pray are um, very ritualistic. There's a certain pattern of postures that you follow and there are very specific things that you're supposed to um, memorize and recite. And so it's, it's, it's a very dry thing, but it's a very solemn thing and ritualistic thing. And, and we do that as Muslims because uh, that's one of the, the five major things we've got to do um, constantly through our lives to have any hope of, of earning a place in heaven. And so when I was a Muslim, man, I was always trying to make sure I prayed every single time. One of those prayers, by the way, happens really early in the morning when most people would be asleep, especially people in the Middle East because we like to stay up really, really late. And so, and I, when I was a young boy, was actually invited many times because I was always showing up no matter what was else was going on, drop everything, run to the mosque to pray because it's time to pray. I was actually allowed to, do, to recite the call to prayer. And so I'd be given a microphone and it would be broadcast over our whole community calling all the faithful Muslims to come and join together at the mosque to go through this very ritualistic prayer. And that was my life for the first 20 years. And then, because of the prayers of so many followers of Jesus, many of whom I've never met, but, but who had heard about me and were praying for me, uh, the Lord's plan and purpose for my life were fulfilled when I met Jesus. And then suddenly I step into this new world 
And I knew that some Christians prayed, at least, <laughs> at that time. And, and, I, and I knew what Muslim prayer looked like, but I had no idea, like, what do I do now? Like, when am I supposed to pray as a Christian? What words am I supposed to say so I can memorize them and recite them every time? But then as I started to think about it more, I thought, well, what is the purpose of prayer now? Because before, the purpose of prayer was to check a box that if I checked enough, maybe God would like me. But I've been, I've been told that the, the great news of the gospel is that Jesus has done all the work. That God loves me, not because of anything I do or have done, but because he loves his beloved son and I am now in him. So what do I need to pray for? Like there's nothing I can do, I keep told, to make him love me anymore, so why do I have to go through all the ritual and what does the ritual look like and, and what are we even doing? And so I started asking questions of people in the church, things like this, and a lot of them just looked at me just puzzled like I, you know, they didn't know how to answer. And, but they were all really certain, at least most of them, were like, you really should pray. Yeah, you really should pray. <laughs> and people in the Bible pray. But, but what, what are we doing? I mean, doesn't God have all power? Why does he need us to say or do anything? He's going to do what he wants to do, right? And so I, I sort of, as I was searching the scriptures and, and trying to figure this stuff out, um, I kept running across this theme in the New Testament about Jesus and his significance, he is so significant. He is the most significant. And one thing I noticed in the Gospels about Jesus is, you know, you're reading this really exciting story, right? Written from people who were there with him, you know, as the spirits, like drawing out the most important details of this short time, these few years that they had with him. And you see Jesus do phenomenal things, right? He's, he's walking around and casting out demons effortlessly. He's healing the sick. He even raises the dead. When he speaks, everyone's listening. He can go out into the middle of the wilderness and people, crowds, thousands will follow just to sit at his feet for hours as he teaches. And you can imagine being one of those disciples that he called out to walk in a really close relationship with him, right? And you're seeing all of these things. And who wouldn't want to, to see that kind of the activity of God, the kingdom of God, just like, boom, you know, manifesting everywhere he, he's going. And he keeps using phrases like, you know, as he's doing these things, you know, the kingdom of God is drawing near to you now as he's doing these things. Like something is manifesting, something is spilling out from one realm into this one. But there's something really funny as you read the story and you read it enough times that eventually it really starts to pop out. And that is that I can't find anywhere in the gospels where the disciples ask Jesus, Jesus, Wow, what an incredible healing ministry. Teach us how to heal. Wow, Jesus, the demons just run screaming from you. Teach us how to cast out demons. Like, give us the step by step. They never asked Jesus, teach us how to preach a good message. 
What does it take to be a, a good teacher of our scriptures? They don't ask him any of that. But what they do ask him is Jesus, teach us how to pray. Isn't that interesting? And it's not as if they were a bunch of people who had never seen prayer before, right? They were, they were Jews in Israel. They had the temple still. They had the priesthood. They had you know, various you know, religious communities all around them, and what were they doing? I mean, I often suspect that this idea of, of praying at certain times of the day was something that the Muslims picked up from the Jews. Because the Jews would, would uh, recite the, the Shema from Deuteronomy, the hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all of your, your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength multiple times a day at dawn and, and, and at, at midday sometimes and at dusk. They'd seen prayer. They probably prayed their whole lives. But there was something different about the lifestyle of prayer that Jesus lived before them. And, and, and they, needed it. they needed his help to figure out what this was, what was different, what was unique. Because that's, they realized, that was the key, the healing, the deliverance, the anointed preaching. It all was rooted in coming out of this lifestyle of prayer that Jesus lived. As he walked with his father. It's interesting because when Paul reflects on Jesus, he'll call him at one time the, the last Adam. He talks about the first Adam, and then Jesus was the last Adam. And the, you know, the first you know, Adam failed, and the last Adam was victorious. And seeing that caused me to think back about Jesus as, as, as a new Adam. And then, because this is just how my brain works, I immediately think, well, you know, what is, what is Adam? It's a name, and it's, well, every name means something, especially in the Bible. And so I thought, well, yeah, of course, Adam. Yeah, God called him Adam because Adam, that's the Hebrew word for man, for mankind, humanity. And so Jesus is, a new, is an example of a new humanity, and so then I started thinking about the original humanity and before things all went so wrong, like what did that look like and, and thinking about how things started. And so if you open your Bibles and turn with me, we're just going to take a little survey of what God's been doing with man over the last few thousand years. But you've got to start with the beginning. And so when you start reading Genesis 1, it's this this amazing, crazy story of, of God with no outside help bringing into being this amazing creation that's all around us and, and not only bringing it into being but then establishing order in it. And all along the way, even when it's in process, he's speaking out over it, looking at what he's, what, what's happened so far and calling it good, 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 good. He's just in love with what's happening. And then he, he ends it all, he crowns it all, he brings it to completeness and fullness with bringing into being, he already has all these living creatures on the earth that he, he loves, and then he brings a special kind of creature 
into the world called Adam, man, humanity. And we get to see what it looks like from God's perspective as he, he brings this new thing into being. And it says in 126, then God said, let us, and that should make your brain wonder, well, who's the us in this? God said, let us make man or Adam or humanity in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion, let them have dominion over all these living creatures that I've made. And that's like a really interesting thing for God to say, especially if, you know, if you're reading this scripture and coming from the perspective of a, of a devout Jew who's familiar with the story of the Torah, you know, the, the first five books of the Bible, and that later on in the story, um, God's gonna give his people like a set of commandments, and one of the foremost of those commandments is what? Is that uh, you're not allowed to make any images of God. He's very explicit about that. And yet, here we have at the very beginning of the story, God has made an image of himself. He's allowed to do that. And so he makes humanity in his image and, and he, he proclaims that they're gonna have dominion rule and while you're still trying to figure out what, maybe what that means and might be tempted to rush on, then the scriptures uh, take a turn a little bit and the, the type of uh, literary style change that shifts from like telling a story to suddenly you get this little tiny poem right in the middle of things. In, in the West, like in the East where I grew up in Saudi Arabia, like we love poetry, we read poetry all the time and it's, it's a big deal and, and, and dissecting poetry and, and experiencing poetry is, is very much a part of our culture. But I found in the West, like a lot of people just don't grow up having a great relationship with poetry and if they've read any poetry, it was because it was required in high school or college or something. Um, but one of the things you're supposed to do when you come across a poem is not read through it really fast and move on, but to go through it slowly, to take a breath, to pause, to read a line, reflect on it, read a line, reflect on it, let it build. And good poetry, really good poetry, will always stir the heart, it'll cause you to feel something. And so whenever you're coming across, you're reading the Bible, and suddenly you see things like kind of bracketed off, and that's supposed to be your indication from the translators that this is a poem in the original language, and you go from talking, telling a story and then it moves to a poem, like that's a good indication that something important was just said, and you might be tempted to skip through it, but it's super, super important, so we're gonna say it to you again in a poem so that you'll slow down, relax, and reflect. And we don't have a whole lot of time this morning to reflect on this the way I would love to, but I just want to point out again this idea that God created humanity in his own image is so important. He doesn't want us to pass by that. And he also wants us to understand that there's something about that he made us male and female, that humanity is one thing, and yet the expression of humanity comes out as two things, more than one, male and female, and that somehow that together 
is wrapped up in what makes us in the image of God, a God who is one, but who is best represented by something that is in itself both intimately united and connected and paired together, but is obviously more than one. Something to think about. And then he's made them, and it's like happy birthday, and the first thing he does before they've done anything at all is he blesses them. And he blesses them by giving them this command to go, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and reign. And so you get this sense that not only is God wanting to take this creation in his own image, this image-bearing creature, and flood the earth with it, just have them cover the whole earth, so that the whole earth is covered with his image, with his likeness, that everywhere he looks on the planet, he sees these beautiful little images of himself reflecting his goodness, his character, his love, his intimacy, his community. But then also these beings are going to reign. They're going to reign over this earth. Even though God made everything, they haven't done anything, but he's just giving it to them as a gift and this blessing. And, and today in, in, in English, you know, we talk about people who have uh, authority in, in dominion and rulership. We have lots of different words for those types of people. But back in ancient days, they had one word that really expressed somebody that had that kind of authority. It was a king. It was a king. And so they immediately, upon their creation, are given this vocation to be kings in God's name. But what kind of kings are they going to be? They're supposed to be kings that reflect who God is. How are they going to be kings that represent God's goodness? Because we're also told in the story shortly thereafter that there is a tree in the garden where God first places them, that if they eat from the tree, they'll be able to decide for themselves what's good and what's evil. Well, that seems useful, but God tells them don't eat from it. It'll actually kill you. So how are they to know, how are they to reign as good kings reflecting this good God? How are they going to know what's good? They're going to have to, unless they seize it for themselves and cut God out of the picture, they're going to have to go to God for everything. Every decision, every question, all along the way, they're going to have to walk with God every step. Seeking his wisdom, his agenda in every area of their life, forever. And you know, they had a word in ancient times for people whose job it was to figure out what the will of God or the will of the gods, what that was. How do we know what, they, what, what God wants, right? And, and that person in ancient times was a priest. You'd go to the priest because you can't talk to God because who are you? So you have special people, holy people, that they're gonna go and talk to God. Well, it looks like right from the beginning, mankind was intended to both reign as kings under God and also act as priests over this creation. Being in constant communion, knowing the will of God all the time. Wow, that's amazing. When you read the story the first time, like if you really allow yourself to read it as if you're reading it for the first time, you're like, this is such a great story. 
And then things go really, really bad, right? There's this lying snake in a garden who tricks them into thinking they can get what they already had by seizing what was never theirs to take. And then mankind, it takes into their own heart, cutting God completely out, saying, now we will decide for ourselves what's good and what's bad. And how does that go? So, so wrong. So, so wrong. Within one generation, you have the first murder. And then you see a few generations later, murder and violence have become so common that one guy's singing a song about it. How great it is that he has the freedom just to kill whoever he wants. And it grieves God's heart because this isn't, this isn't who he is. This isn't his message. They're not acting as priests. They're not discerning his will. They're not acting as kings that reflect who he is. And he's got to wipe it all out. But he finds a guy. One of the best things God can say about him is he walks, named Noah. He walks with God. And God says, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take this family, him and his family, and I'm going to spare them this destruction that comes. And it's just this sad account of unmaking. If you actually look like what happens in the flood and compare it to Genesis 1, God's like undoing steps. Things that were divided now come back together in violent ways. And it's death. But then after that, you turn a few pages, after the flood and one of the first things that Noah does this is at the end of, of Genesis chapter 8. He builds this altar to the Lord, and he's offering the sacrifice. He's praising. This is very priestly activity. If you're from ancient days and you're reading this, he's like, yeah, he's like acting in this role as priest, right? And the Lord's smelling, in verse 21, the, the aroma of that. And the Lord says in his heart, never again will I curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth, neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I've done. And it'd be really easy to read that and miss the like very puzzling statement in the midst of that. So mankind's heart from his youth is just evil. God says, I, I, you know, it's, it's plain as day. And so God's response to that is, I'm not gonna wipe humanity out, I make this vow. I'm not gonna bring destruction again. Wouldn't it be easier to start over? Like, we're already gonna see in the story that even with Noah, things don't go, don't go well very long. And if you thought all the bad people were wiped out, well, there was already rot in the very family that was saved. And God's response to that is, I promise I won't destroy you all even though you're hopeless, even though there's nothing you can do about this, I've got another plan. So you kind of read this story and it continues to be this big story of nations and all of this and, and things quickly spiral again into bad, bad places and you see humanity, a humanity that is so in rebellion to God that they're, it's almost like they're intentionally doing the opposite of everything God commanded them to do in that original blessing. Instead of going and, and filling the earth to make God's name great, they're all gathering together and pooling up in one place and just building up to the sky to make their own name great. 
And when you get to that point in the story, you're just like, okay, you know, God's already said he's not going to destroy them all. What is he going to do? He then scatters them, gets them to spread out. And then the story zooms in on this one guy named Abram. And if you think he's just must be this excellent example of moral character, you read just a little bit more into the story and you're like, wow, was there no one else? But God zeroes in on this one man and his family. And for the rest of the story, like that's where the narrative focus is. On this man and his children and their children and their children and their children. And God has just tied himself to these people. And you're wondering what's going on here. And you get to Genesis 15. And, you know, God's making these promises to Abram. You know, he, he, and Abram is just like, thank you for all this blessing and provision, God, but I've got no one to pass it off to. I've got no, no kids. He's 90 years old now. His wife's barren. Like, what happens after I die? And God's like, don't worry, don't worry. Like, you're going to have, he's like, come on out with me. And he looks up at the sky. And I, like, it's funny because he's 90 years old and God's like, you know, look at the stars, number them if you can. Like, can you see the stars, Abram? I don't know. But your descendants are going to be like that. Their descendants are going to be like that. He's talking to a nine-year-old guy. And all that says that Abram believed God. And it was counted to him as righteousness. As if he had been faithful to a promise with God. And all he did was believe. And it's funny, that word in Hebrew, believe, you look it up, it's actually the, the root word that we get, the word amen in English. So God made a statement that on the face of it was seemed impossible that, he would ever, that this could ever happen. And Abraham's, the only thing he did was say in his heart, amen. And God was like, yes, <laughs> this I can work with. And then Abram immediately proceeds to doubt God and prove it to me and we need to make a covenant and all of this. But it doesn't matter. God continues to work with these people. And there's this promise that's made. This promise, not just to Abram, but to his children. And God sort of pulls back the curtain a little bit to, to explain what he's up to here. He says, Abram, I don't want to just bless you and your family. It's actually my intention that it's through you and your descendants that all nations are going to be blessed. That that original blessing from way back in Genesis 1, that, that my humanity that I love would be restored to the thing they were made to be, I want that for all nations, not just for you and your kids. And you're sort of scratching your head wondering, how is that going to work? Because these people are messed up too. They're really broken. And so you continue on in the story and you come, finally come with things look really, really dark. The, the people that are supposed to bless the nations, which by the way are in total rebellion to God, but God seems bent on blessing his enemies. They're now in slaves in Egypt. Like, how are they ever going to get out of this? They won't let him go, and God raises up Moses, and Pharaoh won't let him go, and it's an amazing story if you've never, like, not just heard it, but read it. Man, go back and read it. Oh. And then God draws, a nation is born in a day out of slavery, and God leads them to salvation through the Red Sea, calls them to this mountain for what, you know, in ancient world language looks like a wedding ceremony between God and this new nation that's just been born called Israel. 
And God's gonna marry these people. And as part of those wedding vows, this is in Exodus 19. God makes some stipulations, like, it's like if then, right? If you do this, then this will happen. And if you do this, then this will happen. And God says in, in Exodus 19.4, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. This is like a bridegroom talking to a bride kind of language. It's beautiful. It's poetic. It's intimate. Now, therefore, so this is what God says. I've taken this, I've done all of this already. You did nothing, nothing to deserve or merit any of that. I did that for you. It says, now I'm going to ask something of you. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, if you do that, You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And, this is the kicker, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to the people of Israel. And so there you have it, just in black and white, that this is what God's been up to all along with this family, is he is reestablishing our true identity and what it means to be an image-bearing humanity that looks like God. But, you know, the people's response will be, and you read in the story, as one voice they shout, yeah, we're going to do it. We're going to obey God's voice and we're going to keep the covenant. How do they do? And you just watch just with frustration as every time you think the story's about to take a better turn and eventually they get into the land and they have a kingdom and they have some good kings and then terrible kings and then okay kings and then really, really bad kings. And it's just... And along the way, these promises are made. This blessing is going to happen. All the nations are going to be blessed. And when you get to the end of the Hebrew Bible, it's like all these promises are still hanging out there. All of these dangling threads have just been left dangling. And you're left to wonder, like, how are the promises of God going to come to pass? And then Jesus shows up. And he just picks it all up. And he's everything. He's everything that the Hebrew scriptures promised he would be and so much more. And not only does he hear his father's voice and is faithful to the covenant, he takes on himself the punishment and the consequence for our disobedience. And would you know it, through this son of David, son of Abraham, all the nations of the earth can now be blessed. And the apostles, you know, in reflection through the Holy Spirit, you know, reflecting on our identity as the people of God. Like this was so clear to them. You see in 1 Peter chapter 2, see if this language sounds familiar to you at all, having just read what we read. Um, You know, Peter's writing to believers, and he says in verse 9 of chapter 2, 
This is First Peter. But you, God's people, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. What for? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you'd not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. It is by the mercy of God that finally now we have the opportunity in Christ Jesus and empowered by his spirit to enter into our vocation as priests and kings on planet earth, but not like the world's idea of priests and kings, but priests and kings in the vein of Jesus Christ who came humble, obedient even to death, who served even those who were gonna betray him reflecting the glory of God to creation and interceding on behalf of creation back to the Father. That's our vocation. And there's no way to participate in it without prayer. Prayer is where it's at. And I just love that during the testimony time this morning, did you guys notice the pattern? Because I sure did. Every single person that took the microphone and shared wonderful testimonies, prayer was at the heart of every single one. It's the heart of my story. I have a feeling it's the heart of all of your stories if you reflect with the Lord. And so, as we close this morning, like how can we talk about prayer without doing it? How can we do that? So, um, as the musicians come back up, I'm just gonna model it for us, and then we're gonna put it into practice um, as the people of God. So if you'll bow your head with me. Papa, Father, I stand in awe of your majesty and power. Lord, it grieves me that so many people in this world don't know who you are, who you really are. And so I ask, Lord, that you would fill the earth through your people with the knowledge of your glory, of your goodness, of the mercy and grace that you want to pour out on all people. We pray, Lord, for the things that are in your heart for this planet, for your kingdom reign and rule, proper order and alignment under the headship of Jesus to manifest first in our own lives and in our families and in our churches and communities, Lord, but all across this city and these nations. Lord, we can't receive anything good unless it comes from you, so we ask you to give us the provision we need for the assignment you've given us. Teach us, Lord, to live as you did, to forgive freely and to receive more and more of the manifestation, the change in our hearts that comes when we recognize how much you have forgiven us. Protect us, Lord, from the schemes of the enemy, but we thank you that he is a defeated enemy.
We thank you, Jesus, that all work for our salvation was completed on the cross. And we invite you, Lord, to take full control of our lives and this planet. This kingdom is yours. And all power and authority belongs to you. Amen.